1: You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. Before we get into John and Betty's stam, I want to kind of fill you in on some of the background information, both political and kind of cultural, to give you an idea of what was going on when John and Betty kind of came into China. The Boxer Rebellion, which is around the turn of the century, and it was a violent uprising to kick out all the foreigners and foreign influence in China. And it wasn't entirely unmerited or really unmerited at all, because you had the European colonialists, which had come in and taken basically carvings up of China, and they were using the Chinese citizens as kind of serfs and slave labor. So they kind of got tired of that and decided we're going to kick you all out, which seems deserved. And in 1911, the Qing Dynasty falls, but it's later kind of brought back with the emperor kind of serving as a puppet president emperor of Manchuria after the Japanese invaded in the early 1930s. May 4th, 1919, you had the May 4th movement, which was an anti-Japanese, anti-warlord, fight the system protest that was caused because the Treaty of Versailles gave Chinese land to the Japanese, and they weren't happy about that, understandably. A few years later, the communists and the nationalists team up to get rid of the warlords. The warlords had all the power at the time, they had the military might, they had the political influence, and the only way to defeat them was by teaming up. It was definitely an instance of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, because then, After the warlords were defeated, the nationalists began mass extermination of the communists, so that didn't last very long at all. And in 1931, the Japanese invade Manchuria, which is the really northern tip of China. Really, I mean, it's a big portion of China, but it's the northern part, so really close to Korea and even closer to Russia. So it's very cold and very big. In the 1930s, up until the start of World War II, you have guerrilla warfare, random city takeovers and pullouts, So you never knew who was going to be in your city. It could be the Nationalists one day, the Communists the next day. It was tumultuous. It was awful. And this was the kind of environment, both political and cultural, that the Stams were heading into. But before we get to all that, I have to kind of get back to when they were born, how they came to be there, that kind of thing. So John Stam was born in 1907 in New Jersey, and he came from a Dutch Reformed background. His father was given a Bible in both English and Dutch, and he took it so he could learn English, and he ended up both bilingual and a believer. And John himself wanted to be a missionary to China from a very young age. And actually, John's great-nephew runs a blog, and he talks about the continued Christian legacy of their family. He says that his mom, although she's never been to China, that in her late 70s, she teaches English every Friday to the families of Chinese graduate students at the local university. And his high school-age daughter hopes to one day be a missionary to China, just like her great-great-uncle John. And when John came to Moody Bible Institute, he decided to only tell God what it was that he needed, because he wanted to prepare himself for missionary service. So he didn't tell anybody if he was low on clothing, low on detergent, low on really anything. He decided to trust the Lord entirely. He tells a story while he was in China. He writes back home about God's provision for a warm pair of socks. He says that over the holidays, he'd agreed to go back home with a classmate, but he didn't have a warm pair of socks. And so one day he's pulling over his shirt and it rips. And it's one of the four pairs of shirts he's planning on taking with him. And so he's feeling really moody, really angsty. He goes outside, it's raining, which of course is perfect for his mood. He's staring out across the lake, and he thinks, it's all well and good to trust the Lord, but I could really use a few dollars. And immediately he was regretful, and he he prayed for forgiveness. And he's walking back in the rain, and he looks down as he crosses the street, and he sees this soggy $5 bill. And he picks it up, and the next day he takes it to the store, and he buys a couple pairs of warm socks and a couple pairs of shirts. And he says he still has the socks today. And he remembers God's goodness and provision, even the small things, every time he pulls them on. Betty Stan was born in 1906 in Michigan, and she was brought up in a very devout Presbyterian family. Her ancestors were pilgrims in the Mayflower. Her father was a professor and then a pastor, and they were sent out by the church to become missionaries to Qingdao, China, which is about eight hours north of Shanghai, and they're both on the coast, so that's basically a direct line. They were sent to do pastoral work as well as help with theological training and teaching while Betty, who was the firstborn, was still an infant. So she really spent her entire life in China. And she liked to write poetry, and at 10 years old, she wrote this I cannot live like Jesus, example though he be, for he is strong and selfless, and I am tied to me. I cannot live like Jesus, my soul is never free. My will is strong and stubborn, my love is weak and wee. But I have asked my Jesus. To live his life in me. I cannot look like Jesus, more beautiful as he, in soul and eye and stature, than sunrise on the sea, behold his warmest his tangible, his dear humanity, behold his white perfection, a purest deity. Yet Jesus Christ has promised that like him we shall be. And not surprising for someone who actually writes good poetry at ten, but she was bookish and very diligent in school, and she held a perfect academic record. And I love it when cool people in history meet other cool people in history. Elizabeth Elliot's parents were retired missionaries in Belgium. And Elizabeth herself was about probably five or six years old when they hosted Betty. And Betty wrote a poem when she was about 19 years old, which Elizabeth memorized at 12, a few years after Betty's death. Elizabeth copied it into her Bible. Betty wrote, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt, send me where thou wilt, and work out thy whole will in my life at any cost now and forever. John and Betty met at this weekly prayer meeting for China, and they fell in love almost immediately. They had the same vision the same goals they wanted to go to the same country work for the same organization that was china inland mission but they couldn't because john would most likely be sent somewhere rough and dangerous and he couldn't have a family there with him and also china inland mission didn't let their missionaries marry until they'd been on the field for about a year so they decided to hold off and kind of put their romantic future in god's hands and so when betty graduated they said their goodbyes and decided to see what would happen in the future and then Betty goes off and she stays around Shanghai. She does language study and evangelism, that sort of thing, for about six months ish. And when John graduates, he was chosen to give the speech to the moody class of 1932. And he gives the following stirring challenge Shall we beat a retreat and turn back from our high calling in Christ Jesus? Or dare we advance at God's command in the face of the impossible? Let us remind ourselves that the Great Commission was never qualified by clauses calling for advance only if funds were plentiful and no hardships or self-denial were involved. On the contrary, we are told to expect tribulation and even persecution, but with it, victory in Christ. When John goes to China, he ends up in a very different part of the country, doing pretty much the same thing. And he becomes very accomplished in Chinese very, very quickly. And he's able to go to meetings in Chinese and preach in Chinese in under a year, which is absolutely mind-blowing. As someone who struggled to learn Chinese while living in China for two years, this is absolutely incredible to me. It shows that he had a really earnest desire to learn and that he was gifted in it. It was something that God wanted him to do, clearly, because it is very, very difficult. And later on, he's sent to Shanghai, which Betty and John kind of take as a green light for their relationship. So they get engaged, and they spend that year doing ministry work, kind of getting set up, and they're married by R.A. Tori who was a member of Biola University. He was a famous evangelist. He went around doing Moody-style evangelistic meetings all over the world. And then after they're married, Betty becomes pregnant right away, and she gives birth to their baby Helen in September of 1934 via C-section, which delays their move into their new ministry about four hours south. The area they're moving to is mountainous and rural and was plagued by bandits and periodic skirmishes between communist and nationalist forces. But their safety was guaranteed by the town's leaders, so they felt like they were safe to go there at least for now, and they'd have enough time to get out if things started going south, so they felt pretty good about it. But less than a month after they got there, so they were there from November to December 6th, communist troops were beating on their door. And John invites them in, they sit down for tea, Betty's upstairs, she's kind of hiding out with the baby. Uh, She was giving her a bath, she takes the time to sew a little $5 bill into her jacket. Meanwhile, John's downstairs with them, they're sitting down. The communists are like, hey, what are you doing here? Do you have any money? And John was like, this is all that we have. And the communists are like, well, you're going to have to give us more. And John says, we don't have anything else. And the housekeeper and the cook are kind of watching on. And the communists start asking where Betty is. And the housekeeper says, well, you have John. So why don't you just take John and leave Betty here? And they said, no, that's not going to happen. And so Betty comes down the stairs and she's holding her little two-month-old girl in her hands. And she sits on the stoop. And she tries reasoning with them, and they still say, no, you're going to have to come with us. And the housekeeper says, well, if you won't let them stay here, we'll come with them. And the communists go, why on earth would you want to go with them? They're white foreign devils, you're Chinese, you stay here. And the housekeeper and the cook said, no, we're going to go with them. And the guards said, absolutely not, you're not. And they pointed a gun at their heads, and they made them stay back. So they took Betty and John and the baby, and they stripped Betty and John down to their underwear and forced them to march. And Mr. Lee, who was the cook, decided to follow the army behind at a distance, and he kept an eye on things. He never saw Betty or John, but he heard from people that were kind of in the towns around them that said, Yeah, they're good. They're fine. Like, they smiled at us. They seemed okay. And Mr. Lee was afraid of being dragged into the army, so he turned back, but he was so exhausted because he wasn't eating, he wasn't sleeping that he collapsed headfirst into a creek and he made it out. But that tells you just how determined they were to help the Stams, which goes to show you that the Stams were good people. They were, they thought very highly of them, which is a personal note that you don't often get in these stories. Sometimes when they're old, it can kind of feel like you're opening up an encyclopedia or a textbook or something and you're getting the bare bones of it. But these kind of stories help you personalize the people behind the stories. So I, I enjoy reading these things because it shows you just how much the housekeeper and the cook really loved them. They took the stamps to the post office, which they were using as kind of a temporary holding cell. And it was still in the same town, so they didn't take them very far the first night. And they make John write a ransom letter. And they asked for $20,000, which John knew that CIM absolutely would not pay. They had a policy not to pay any kind of ransom money because if they started paying ransoms, they would have missionaries kidnapped everywhere. So as he signed this letter, and sent it off, he knew that he was in God's hands, that CIM was never going to be able to ransom him. And so he writes this letter. He says, Dear brethren, my wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists. Their demand is $20,000 for our release. All our possessions and stores, funds or goods are in their hands. But we praise God. We have peace in our hearts and we had a meal tonight. God grant you wisdom in what you do and us fortitude, courage, and peace of heart. He is able and a wonderful friend in such a time. Things happened so quickly this a.m. They were in the city just a few hours after the ever-present rumors really became alarming so that we could not prepare to leave in time. We were just too late. The Lord bless you and guide you. And as for us, may God be glorified, whether by life or death. In him, John C. Stamm. One man, as he was getting released from custody, overheard the guards planning to kill baby Helen so they didn't listen to her cry anymore. And he begged with them to save her life. And the guards asked if he was a Christian, and he said no. They asked if he was willing to die for the baby, and he said yes. And he was hacked to pieces on the spot. And baby Helen was saved. And the next morning, they were marched 12 to 14 miles to another city. And John was tied to the bed, forced to stand, and Betty was free to care for the baby. And the next morning, they were paraded through town, still in their underwear, and mocked and jeered at. And a local merchant and Christian Mr. Chong tried to plead with the communists to spare them, and they raided his house and found a Bible and a hymn book, and they killed him. On December 8, 1934, John and Betty Stam were taken to a hill and decapitated. John first, and then Betty. And the army withdrew from the city after that, their task seemingly complete. And you're probably thinking, what happened to the baby? Well, a Chinese preacher named Lo had arrived in the city with his wife and four-year-old son a few days before. And he was arrested when the army invaded. And Mr. Chong, the same Mr. Chong, vouched for him and they let him go. And if I'm thinking about it, more than likely the reason why he was killed that second time was because he had already vouched for another Christian a couple days before. So this could be unrelated. They could have just killed him on the spot, didn't remember him. But more than likely, they saw that he was just going around saving Christians and they got mad at him and they killed him. Lo flees with his family into the mountains and they stay there for a few days. And after the communists retreat, they kind of come back down and they see what happens. And they rush to the hill where they see the Stams, but no baby. And Lowe and his family had met the Stams before, so they knew that they had a baby. And so he goes into the town, and he pleads the people to help him find her. And finally, after hours of looking, one lady whispers, The foreign baby is still alive in there. Mr. Lowe goes in and he finds her, and she's still laying on the same spot her mother had left her. And she's okay. She's a little bit weak, a little dehydrated. She'd been there for about 25 to 36 hours. It's unsure really how long she was left there, but roughly around that time frame. So he took the baby and he returned to the hill to give John and Betty a proper burial. And he preaches to the people who had gathered around. He says, You have witnessed what took place here today and feel pity for what has happened to our friends. You should know, however, that they are children of God and their souls are already at rest in the bosom of their Heavenly Father. It was for you that they came to China in order to tell you about God's great love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that you might believe in Jesus and gain eternal life. You have already heard the message they preached, and have seen their sacrifice, which is certain evidence of their love. Do not forget what they said, that you must repent and believe the gospel. Lo and his wife carry Helen and their own son, who was sick from being up in the mountains for so long. They carried them over a hundred miles in baskets, carried by bamboo poles they held between each other and they bring Helen to the CIM headquarters, where she was returned to Betty's parents. The Stam's death rocked the world, and Helen was dubbed the Miracle Baby, with many people offering to adopt her if needed, and sending heartfelt condolences to the Stam and Scott families. The Stam's sacrificial deaths are often cited as galvanizing a new generation of missionary candidates, including 700 young people at Moody Bible Institute and 200 at nearby Wheaton College, all pledging to follow the Stam's example of selfless Christian service and echoing John's final message to his missionary colleagues, The Lord bless you and guide you, and as for us, may the Lord be glorified whether by life or by death. One mission leader remarked, I personally know of hundreds of volunteers of all ages who gave their life to the Lord for ministry service because of the death of John and Betty Stam. A co-worker of the Stam's wrote to Betty's grieving parents, A life which had the longest span of years— might not have been able to do one hundredth of the work for Christ, which they have done in a day. I feel like it used to be that every generation had a missionary that kind of impacted them and kind of galvanized, as they said, a new generation of missionaries to kind of come up and share the gospel. Before the Stams, there was Hudson Taylor. After the Stams, there was Jim Elizabeth Elliott. And then after Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, probably the story of Gracia and Martin Burnham. And that's kind of the goal of martyrs and missionaries: is to get you to think about the people who came before us, the martyrs and missionaries, the people who inspired others, and hopefully inspire you, and maybe not necessarily to go, but to encourage other people to go, to help out where you can, to fulfill the Great Commission. And so I hope you've really felt that in this episode, and I hope that as we continue to go through these stories, that you'll find even more inspiring people and be able to recognize the great Christian heritage that we have. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share it around. Thanks for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.